0: Oh, goodness gracious, that's always fun. Why don't you stand with me? We're gonna read Genesis chapter two, verses one and two with one another. Let's read together. Sometime later, here we go. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, even for this startling story. Of Abraham's faith and your call to go. Give us eyes to hear, ears to hear, eyes to see, and the feet to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This story, this story was designed for immediate visceral tension. Uh, for every reader to feel that tension, that major ask, go, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and offer him as sacrifice on Mount Moriah. All along the way in this story, even when we get to verse 3, where we have this list of intentional, immediate, yet mundane acts. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place that God had told him about. It's as if The writer, the narrator of this story, Moses, is very intentional to ratchet up that tension. There's really no need for the narrator to explain perhaps what Abraham was feeling in the moment. We don't have to wonder, we know. Uh, We know with every moment of mundane task of getting the donkey ready and chopping the wood, that there was this pit in his stomach of what His God asked me to do. And if we move beyond for many of us who've just grown up and heard this story, and if we can try to imagine ourselves thousands of years ago, receiving a similar call to take our only son or our only daughter, we too would be left gripped. What's God doing? What is he asking? It's part of the point of the story and designed for the story for us to feel that very visceral tension, that build of what's gonna happen next. But who is Abraham? Let's just pause for a moment. Who is Abraham? Last week, we began this this series of unlocking the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament with the story of Noah. And we left with... Uh, two lenses applied to that story, the lens of creation and the lens of Jesus. And we were reminded once again through the story of Noah that God is committed to blessing all of humanity and fulfilling that original blessing, that men and women were made in his image to be fruitful and to multiply and rule and have dominion over the earth as his image bearers. God is committed to fulfilling that. He started it all over with Noah. And we see also that beginning to take shape here in chapter 12, after the Tower of Babel, we have God choosing Abraham to be the man to fulfill his commitment to that original blessing that he gave to humanity. Not to mention that original blessing that he gave uh, Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, listen, you will know death now, you will know brokenness now, life will be hard now, but you will have a son who will redeem all of that. And God set his heart and his eyes upon Abraham. He chose Abraham, not because he was particularly special in any kind of way, but he set his eyes on Abraham and he chose him to be a part of fulfilling that blessing and that promise in Genesis chapter three to redeem humanity. And so he made a covenant with Abraham he said, listen, I have chosen you and I want you to go to leave the place of your, your heritage, your family, your father and I want you to take your family and go to a brand new place and you don't even know where I'm gonna go and take you but it will, you will be blessed when you get there. I'll give you a brand new land. And then he also says, if you go, my covenant with you is that you will be a father of many, many nations. That's what his name means, Abram. He says, you'll be a father of many nations. You'll be a father of kings and princes. In fact, through you, I will bless the whole world, all the nations. You'll be a blessing. Now that really boggled Abraham's mind because he was already an old man and didn't have any children. And yet he believed God. Genesis chapter 15, verse six, that says that um, God counted to him righteousness because of the belief that he had in the covenant God-given. He believed God. And he did what God asked him to do. He was chosen. He was a recipient of a covenant. Now the covenant actually that we have received in verse, chapter 12, we see in chapter 12, chapter 13, 15, 17, and even today in chapter 22. But Abraham all along the way exhibits stunning faith and obedience at the same time, Abraham, like the rest of us, has colossal failures. And so you have this man that God has chosen, whom he has blessed and made a covenant with, who has demonstrated faithfulness, obedience to God, and all along the way, too, he has demonstrated incredible failure. And now we have chapter 22. In verse one, which we read together, the narrator wants us to know, Moses wants us to know, who we believe we were, he wrote um, these, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, he wants us to know right away that this is a test. This is a test. We have kind of a bird's eye view of this story, um, that this is a test. Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Now, this is helpful for us, but kind it kind of forecasts for us and maybe puts us at a little bit of ease that God's main goal here is not the death of Isaac. That's not where God's heart is. This is a test. This is a test. It's not gonna end up with Isaac's sacrifice. This is the last of a major series of tests. And what is the test exactly? Uh, the test is of... Jacob's affections, will he be devoted to God and love him more or will he be devoted to the life and preservation of the life of his son more? Will he trust God with his son's life or will he preserve his son's life? It's a test of affection. It's a test of do I believe the divine promises of God? At the same time when God is asking me to undo the promises, because it's through Isaac that God's going to fulfill the blessing to the nations. Do I do I believe the promises of God and in what God is asking me to do? How do those two fit together? It's a major test of faith and trust. It's important for us to know when we read stories like this, and even when we go through the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, that... Tests are all over the place. We see many accounts where God brings tests and hardship to a person's life. But we need to know that God never leads us into a moment of testing so that we can be led into a moment of temptation and sin. That's not God's aim. God's aim is not to test Abraham so that he might trip up. No, it's for Abraham's good. Good. In some ways, tests remind us, are intended to remind us of what we have already been given and the promises of head. Uh, the tests put us in situations where we have to reflect on okay, what has God already done in my life? What has He already promised me in my life? And where have I seen God? honor his promises and and now i need to weigh those against the situation that i am am i going to trust him even now and that's the purpose of this test is abraham will will you obey me and trust my promises and the things that i've already given you against what i'm asking you to do right now will you weigh those will you weigh those Our lives are full of tests of faith, whether we hear something explicit from the Lord or not, but all along the way, um, we experience tests of faith. And it's in those moments of testing that our character is shaped, our faith is strengthened. Isn't that what God longed for after all with Abraham? The the test, it wasn't for God, it was for Abraham. Abraham. Uh, The test was to strengthen Abraham's faith, not not because God had some need in his own character and being. No, the test was intended for this man that he had chosen and set apart whom he had blessed. Uh, He wanted Abraham to continue to grow in faith, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a test, and it's a big one. But what's true of Abraham is true of us. We have faith all along the way, and we too, we encounter those tests, and those tests are for us to shape our faith, to sharpen our character. And will we trust the promises of God in the face of the challenges and the tests that we encounter, or will we just live by our own wisdom in the midst of them? Tests everywhere. Uh, Peter, the apostle, wrote about tests when he was writing the churches. Um, he says this in chapter 1, um, verses 6 and 7. He says this, So truly be glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. He's talking to a church that's beginning to taste hardship and testing. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through your faith, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials or tests, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter says, listen, I know you're tasting hardship and tests, but tests are good for you. They're intended for your good to sharpen, to mold, and strengthen your faith. And what's true of Abraham is true of us now. And we just don't have big tests. We do have those from time to time. We have big tests. Maybe not quite so big as what Abraham was facing and asking to sacrifice his only son. But we have big tests in our life But really... Most of our lives are made up of a lot of little tests, aren't they? A lot of little tests. Um, will, I, will I love my enemy? Will I love my enemy? Will I tr- entrust this situation to the Lord? Will I, will I, will I be a servant? Or will I just take for myself? Will I be generous? Will I store up treasures in heaven or will I just store up my own treasures here on earth? Will I live by the wisdom of God or the wisdom of men? We have a lot of many tests along the way, tests of forgiveness and generosity, tests of kindness and mercy and grace. And those tests are, ought to be a reminder for us is, has God been gracious to me? Yes, though, therefore I should be gracious to them. Has God been gracious and merciful to me? I should be merciful to them. Has God been generous to me? I should be generous to them. Has God been a servant to me? It's tests are a reminder of what we've been given and what we are promised. And we live accordingly. It's in those moments where we are shaped we are shaped, our character shaped, and our faith is strengthened, because it's in those moments that we see God provide the most, which we'll get to in a minute. Another major thing that we see spring up out of the story. It's unavoidable when we read through it. In fact, it's staggering those same mundane things that create tension in us, like what is Abraham thinking when he's cutting the wood and packing the donkey? Um, What we also see here is belief does. Belief does. It goes to work. You know, we're told um, halfway through the narrative that Abraham has been quietly assuring himself that God will provide. In verse eight of chapter 22, here's some irony. So up until Verse 7, up until verse 7, there's not a word other than him, servants, you stay here. Isaac and I are going to go up and come back. There's not a word. The only word that we have in conversation between Isaac and Abraham is when Isaac breaks the silence and he says, dad, where's the lamb that will be sacrificed when we get to the top of the mountain?" but we get a a picture of what Abraham has been stewing over. Yes, that emotional attention, attention, right, that's rising, but also he's, he's playing over in his mind the promises of God and the things that God has already done in his life, and his answer is a legitimate one. He has these profound, staggering assurances, and he tells Isaac in verse eight, He says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. And they both walked on together. And so we had this great sense of Abraham's belief in the promises of God. Everything, all the promises of God were wrapped up in his son, Isaac. I mean, he had Isaac when he was an old, as an old man, and he's older still. The likelihood of him having another son, I mean, he's like, everything is wrapped up into this one son, and I believe in the promises of God. And he did, his belief went to work based upon what he believed God was going to do. And so we have a picture. He believed that God was gonna provide and make a way. We have a little more insight when we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and that hall of faith, right? The writer of Hebrews says, listen, uh, uh, Abraham believed God so much that he knew that even if he sacrificed his own son, God would raise him back to life. I mean, he had such incredible belief. But the, the, the incredible part of it is not just the intellectual belief, but that it went to work. The next morning, after God told him what to do, he got up early, got the donkey ready, cut the wood. It went to work. I I know if it were me and even, I've never been in a situation like this. Not even close, but I imagine I would have delayed as much as I could. I would have waited for God to say it a second time. Just to be, you know, I would have laid out the, the wool, Tested God all kinds of ways. But you don't find that with Abraham. He believed God and it went to work. He put one foot after another moving towards action and fulfilling what God had commanded him to do. Belief can't help itself but get to work. Real, legitimate belief. Belief does. Belief is not idle. The brother of Jesus would say it like this in uh, chapter 2, Um, verse 21 in the book of James. He would say it like this when he's talking about Abraham. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his own, own son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. The brother of Jesus says, Belief and action is inseparable. You can't separate the two. Belief always goes to work. In fact, James would say that's how you know it's real. A faith that just stays up here, flutters around the heart, but never goes to work in the home, in the workplace, at school, or wherever. If it's not going to work, then the question is, is it dead faith or alive faith? Because faith that is alive, obedience and faith is inseparable. And James, looking back and says, we should marvel at Abraham whose faith went to work because that's real faith, real faith. So belief does. Belief does. And so we see two things so far that come out of this story. One is God tests us, tests Abraham to shape character and strengthen faith. But also now belief does, belief goes to work. The last thing that we see spring up out of this text is Perhaps what God wants to see us to see the whole time is that he provides. God provides. Of course, Abraham knew that. That's what his assurance was, that God provides, but how does he provide? When they arrived at the place, this is verse nine, when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood, and Abraham picked up. All of this is really drawn out on purpose. The tension is still rising. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice, and at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for... Now I know that you truly fear God, that you really believe him. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Verse 13, then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yaira, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provides. God came through so much so that Abraham names that place as the place that God provided. God is a provider. Perhaps more than anything, that's what God wants us to know about himself is that he is always the giver when we're unable to even provide for ourselves. And Psalm chapter 66 verses 10 through 12 reads this, you have tested us, O God, you have purified us like silver, you Captured us in your net and laid the burden of slavery on our backs. Talking about the exile here, then you put a leader over us when we went through fire and flood. I just talking about the Exodus. Then you put a leader over us. We went through fire and flood. You brought us to a place of great abundance. God says, "I want you to know that I am provider," and that's what we see in this text. But remember. In the ways that God has provided. When we go back to Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham has no righteousness of his own. Who provided it? God did. Even his only son was not a sufficient sacrifice to cover the sins of Abraham. Uh, We know that God instituted sacrifice as a way to cover our shame. We see it at the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell, he killed the first animal, the first sacrifice, and covered their shame. Uh, The sacrifice is intended to cover our shame to be a picture of atonement for sin and shame. But anything Abraham would bring, even his own son, would be insufficient. Who provided for Abraham A sacrifice. God did. God did. Of course, our minds don't stay here, do they? It's all over this story. From the very beginning, God had set his sights on painting a picture of what his son would do on the cross, and it's no different than in this story. And we we know from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that the blood of rams, lambs, goats, and bulls was never intended to cover sin because it's inadequate, can't. that's why they had to do it over and over and over again. It was insufficient to atone for sin. We, We know that there is only one sufficient sacrifice to cover sin. What did John the Baptist say? when he saw his cousin coming to the Jordan for baptism. Anyone know? John chapter one, verse 29. Behold, well, he said that for sure. I'm not worthy of untying your sandals. You should be baptizing me. But the first time he laid eyes on him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Even John the Baptist's mind is going back to this story of God's provision on Mount Moriah. Romans chapter three, uh, Paul tells us that God passed over all of those former sins, Uh, the former sins of Abraham and Moses and all of the faithful in the Old Testament. He passed over them all. None of those sins were atoned for except by the blood of Jesus. Jesus died for Abraham too. And it's a wild thought to think that at that moment when God provides this ram stuck in that bush that really God's heart and mind is set on his son Jesus who would die for Abraham's sin. God is provider. God is provider. I mean, God is our provider. All along the way in our life, between now and the time that Jesus returns, we're going to face tests and hardships and trials. We see it all over the New Testament. And God wants us to know, can I just remind you of whom I have given and what I have promised? Will you hold on to that Do you have the kind of belief that trusts in whom I've provided in my son Jesus? Do you have the kind of belief that holds on to the promises that yes, between now and the time my son returns, life is gonna be hard and challenging, but I have greater things in store for you. You will be my image bearers. You will reign with my son Jesus over all creation. You will be victorious over sin and death for all time. Do you believe that? And between now and then, will your life be governed and will your life be governed by that kind of faith and belief? Will it go to work? Will it trust the promises of God? When we look at Paul's life a few times throughout his writings, he captures for us the kind of belief that he has. I just want to read a, read a little bit of that. This is Philippians chapter three. If I can find it. Chapter three, verse eight. Listen to Paul. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I might that I so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law; rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. Paul says. In this letter and others, he says, I want every last drop of what God provides through Jesus. And I'm willing, if God asks, to give it all up, to give it all up, to trust in his promises because I want every last drop of what God provides through Christ. And the ask of us is the same. In those big places and little places of Testing, will will we trust the wisdom and promises of God over the wisdom and promises of sin and death? Because we want more of what God provides in Jesus. Will we lay it all down? It's no wonder when Jesus starts talking about a real life of faith, he says, um, you know, if you want to follow me, you've got to give it all away. You've, you've got to lay down your life if you want to save your life. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? When we come to the Lord's table, which we will in a moment, it's an opportunity for you and myself to consider once again, to be reminded once again of the Lamb of God who was slain, who was provided for us. And it's an opportunity for us to say yes. I'm staking my life on that because he provided his life for me. In him, I have forgiveness. And I have a real future. I will believe and I will act and my faith will go to work all the more. That's why we do this. It's why we do it together, that we are called to be a people of belief that goes to work, believing in the promises of God that we have in Jesus. And every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, it's a declaration of that promise, that the Lamb of God died for the sins of the world, that through faith, I might know forgiveness and victory over sin and that I might have a righteousness not of my own, but of one that has been provided for me, given. Let's pray. Father, guide us now as we remember what your son did for us, the Lamb of God. Lord, help us to sink our teeth into the reality of what Christ has done. And Lord, help our faith and belief in that to take shape, take action, in our life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.